This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A very important anniversary this weekend. It marked the second anniversary of the murder of hockey dad Paul Bennett. He was the operating room nurse at Peace Arch Hospital, father of two boys. You may remember this case, as I said, only two years ago. He was gunned down in broad daylight in his driveway in Cloverdale, in a cul-de-sac full of families. It was a sunny Saturday afternoon. Now, surveillance video from the homes nearby showed a silver car pulling up to Bennett's driveway before someone got out of the passenger side. And moments later, shots are fired. Same person climbs back into the vehicle and it speeds away. We haven't heard a whole lot about progress when it comes to this case. Now, CKNW and Global News reporter Janet Brown spoke to IHIT Sergeant Frank Jang, who said the case is still active, but they can't provide much more for a community that's still looking for justice. Paul's investigation remains an active and ongoing investigation of ours, and it, it remains uh, one of our priority investigations. And um, just to bring everybody back two years ago, Paul Bennett, we've learned uh, since then that um, he obviously he was an unintended victim of a targeted shooting. We've gotten to know uh, Darlene, Paul's wife, and we know uh, we have a full sense of the impact that this has had on the community. So we are diligently following uh, various avenues of investigation, but those avenues I can't comment at this time because it is ongoing, and and certainly we do not want to jeopardize an ongoing homicide investigation. But on this, the two-year anniversary, we are again pleading to those who have information about what happened to Paul. This was an unintended uh, shooting, but we believe that this was meant to be a, a targeted shooting of a different of another individual and oftentimes we know from experience from having uh, investigated these uh, these types of investigations that there are more than one person uh, involved in this case it is not just a shooter um, but it is our, it is our experience that there are others involved um, for example there are those involved in being uh, what we call the getaway driver there are those involved in trying to eliminate evidence that we've seen uh, in the past, in recent past, of perpetrators trying to burn vehicles, for example, to eliminate evidence. So there's, there are others that are complicit in the offense, not just the shooter. And, and so our message today is to those who have information, that have intimate knowledge about what happened to Paul, is that we haven't forgotten about Paul, not since day one. And we are actively going after uh, those responsible. So we need people with information to step forward and do the right thing. I think last time I talked to your boss, Frank, he told me a couple of months ago that there was actually a dedicated number of officers working on this case, working daily mm-hmm. on this case. Is that still the situation? Yes, uh, we, we have the core team that uh, has custody of Paul's investigation, and that's the same team that uh, were called uh, initially uh, two years ago. So we're working hard on this case. We understand that the community, especially the community of Cloverdale, where, where this took place, they want answers. And uh, unfortunately, we can't rush the evidence. We can't rush the investigation. It just comes as it comes. But 
uh, we're out there, we're knocking on doors, we're, we're you know, shaking uh, the branches on the tree. And a lot of uh, developments have happened on this case. Unfortunately, I can't get into this. I can't get into the specifics at this time, uh, but just to give an idea to the community that there there have been hundreds of hours of video reviewed on this case, uh, and equally is a similar amount of people spoken to on this case as well. So there's been a lot of work being done. There continues to be a lot of work uh, being done on the case. We believe we're close, but oftentimes it, we need people uh, to report on the information that they know. Uh, it's not just uh, electronic evidence. It's not just video evidence, but it's it's human evidence. It's witnesses that have information that can come forward that can who can corroborate the information that's gathered there. And in homicide investigation, witnesses are so key, and so we are appealing for witnesses to come forward. And even after two years, it's never too late to do the right thing. That's always been our message to those who are reluctant to come forward. But we're hoping that those who have that information. Uh, would find it in themselves to have the courage and to have that strength of conviction to do the right thing today. You said we believe we are close. Does that mean that you feel you're close to making an arrest or uh, furthering the case? What does that mean exactly? Mm -hmm. Well, we believe we're closer than we were in day one. Uh, That is for certain. In the last two years, uh, there has been a mountain of information that has been gathered hundreds of hours of video reviewed, over 100 people spoken to on this case. As much as I like to go into the specifics, the details of this case, I just can't at this time. Uh, We're hoping that, and and we do realize that the community knows that we, the police uh, at IHIT, we have to be, we have to keep the information close to us because uh, those responsible uh, haven't been arrested. Uh, haven't been brought to prosecution yet. And we're hoping that that day comes sooner. Um, but today is not that day. And until until we have the people in custody, until we can bring them before a, uh, before a court of law uh, to make them accountable for what, uh, what has happened, uh, we just can't get into those details, not at this time. You're listening to Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. I think it's a good idea to make your holiday plans to travel somewhere in BC this summer. And there's all sorts of great places for you to go to. So many incredible destinations in our own backyard. And in fact, the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada is launching its Destination Indigenous. To explain more about that, Keith Henry joins us now, President and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. Keith, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show this morning. Now, I know this is was an up-and-coming, like, really growing sector the last couple of years, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've been uh, we've had uh, several hundred new businesses start up across the country, and, of course, right here in British Columbia, Indigenous tourism has been was growing quite substantially over the last number of years. And w- so what do we classify as Indigenous tourism? What does that mean? Well, it's a businesses, essentially, the, the, the main component is there's three types of things. And the main component is that it's Indigenous owned and operated. I mean, um, we've seen a real shift in the tourism, uh, I guess, the visitor expectations. They want to experience authentic Indigenous culture. And, and that starts with making sure that our, our communities and our entrepreneurs own and, and operate businesses that can provide that real authentic experience. And so whether that's hotels, uh, you know, restaurants, um, transportation, you know, right here in Vancouver, we got uh, Isku Air. That's a uh, Métis woman, a Métis Cree woman that owns and operates a small transportation uh, um, service. 
there's a variety of, of businesses that have been created around uh, giving visitors uh, um, options to, I guess, support and, and experience local Indigenous culture. So what does Destination Indigenous mean then? How will people be able to do that? Well, we want to... We wanna really have a platform across this country uh, where people can find, you know, these these gem experiences, right? I mean, so Destination Indigenous was a concept that released yesterday in conjunction with National Indigenous Day, and it was really uh, exciting for us. It's been a tough, tough uh, situation yeah. as COVID-19 has impacted our industry. I know I've spoken on your show before about that. And what we're but we what we want to do is really signal a reopening that we're we're coming back. Our businesses. Not all of them will reopen, but we wanted to give a platform where people could find accurate information about what's open uh, starting uh, this, this 2020. Okay, so tell us, what are some of the areas that are open? Where can people go? Well, I mean, there's, there's places that, well, across the country, there's a number of places, but uh, here in British Columbia, like, you know, there's there's the Indigenous restaurant Salmon and Bannock right in Vancouver that people could go in and enjoy, you know, authentic Indigenous cuisine. You can go up to Whistler. There's a Squamish Little Cultural Centre that's reopening. Uh, there's there's Talisade Tours is providing tours here in the Lower Mainland, uh, Squatch Eyes uh, uh, Lodge, and of course they have a uh, a gallery there right in downtown Vancouver. So I'm giving you very Vancouver specific examples, mm-hmm. but the point is there's a number of these businesses like that that are beautiful uh, experiences. Uh, they sell great authentic indigenous art and they provide a, a, a cultural tours and. These are the kind of things that we want to make sure residents are aware of, as many of us will be looking to do things in our backyard. Are you hoping, like, can enough locals, can enough B.C. residents or Canadian residents make up for that loss in international tourism? Because I know that was huge. Yeah, it's going to be really challenging. That's So the short answer is I'm not sure. and what, But the long answer is... Uh, we've created this platform, Destination Indigenous Dotsie, and we really hope people go take a look at it and see what's available because we want Canadians and especially British Columbians to rally around supporting our businesses. If they don't, the consequences are going to continue to be um, very large. I mean, um, COVID will, in this country, uh, in British Columbia, let's talk about that because obviously this show, uh, there's about 400 or so Indigenous uh, experiences in the province uh, we are facing one of uh, British Columbia will be very hard hit if we don't uh, help prevent that. We could lose uh, over a hundred businesses right here in British Columbia. So these are the kind of things that we we need to find strong support from local residents this year more than ever. And we've given a platform where people can go and find and and, and uh, enjoy uh, Indigenous activities. Uh, what about places like, I know there's a lot of great fishing lodges, you know, especially along the coast, a little harder to get to perhaps. Are there, are those places also going to be reaching out more access for people to get there? Right. Well, that's going to be some of the challenges we have is some of the coastal communities are choosing that they may or may not reopen. Uh, that It's due to COVID concerns. And that's mm-hmm. why we've destination Indigenous is critical. Like, not all indigenous communities in this province are going to reopen. It's 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 a it's a real it's a safety issue. And as indigenous tourism, we want to make sure we're marketing and promoting the right businesses that are open. And that's why you really have two sources: you have destinationindigenous.ca, or you can go to indigenous uh, um, uh, sorry, pardon me, indigenousbc.com. Both of us have these platforms that will show which businesses are exactly open for 2020. Okay, so then people have a choice. Do you think, is there a lot of interest in this? Do you feel like I know that everybody I talk to, they're looking for places to go in BC? I, I absolutely do. I think, um, you know, 
um, quite frankly, uh, British Columbians especially, and you know uh, many parts of this country, you know, the Canadians themselves, have been our largest customer base. So it's about 55 to 60 percent of our business. This year, it's got to be 100 percent, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's the yeah, reality. That's so, true. so, so we are really trying to create some excitement and some interest, and let people know that you know we are returning to normal operations across this country with hundreds of our businesses. And uh, you know, now's the time that uh, I think we want people to come explore. All right, we'll check it out. Uh, Keith, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. All right, that is Keith Henry. He's the president and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. They've launched DestinationIndigenous.ca. Check that website out if you're looking for places to explore in BC. I know a lot of people are. I had somebody ask me the other day if I'd ever been to Barkerville. I said, yeah, of course I've been to Barkerville. As a kid, that's all we did was explore BC, you know, all those different camping trips. But for a lot of people, there are destinations in BC that will be new to them. And there's all sorts of great ones to pick from. And listen, those industries need British Columbia residents now more than ever. So you can check that out online. You're listening to Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Any workplace in British Columbia where people are playing games at the expense of the health or safety of Indigenous people, one can only expect someone in those roles to face severe consequences. That is the voice of Mary Ellen Terpel LaFond. Of course, you remember her. She was the former representative for children and youth. And she has now been tapped by Health Minister Adrian Dix to lead an investigation. It officially starts today, and it's going to be looking into the allegations of rampant racism in BC's healthcare system. On Friday, we heard these reports of healthcare staff, as she was talking about there, playing a game, betting on the blood alcohol level of mainly Indigenous patients that they were treating. We wanted to talk more about this now with the help of our next guest, Clara Morandel coles the president of Métis Nation BC. Clara, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me on. When did you first hear about stories like this? Well, we've always known uh, that uh, there's... uh, racism in our healthcare system and that has existed but to hear about the game on Friday uh, or late Thursday it outraged us to know that this is still happening in our healthcare system uh, when we're hoping that uh, programs such as cultural awareness and cultural safety were to be implemented in all healthcare systems And to hear this was really disheartening for all our Indigenous people when they should be feeling safe, secure, and welcome when seeking treatment. So ever since that press conference and on Friday, have people been calling you? What have you been hearing? We were flooded with calls from healthcare staff who have witnessed and had uh, stories to tell, but were afraid to come forward and lose their jobs. Uh, And... They, uh, this is workers within the system, uh, frontline workers. We were flooded with calls, and some who, when spoke up to supervisors, lost their jobs. So on um, yesterday, we had a call with Minister Dix, and we asked the minister to establish a 1-800 tip line for anyone who has seen or experienced racism, and that if they whistleblow, they will not face any recrimination. Now, you said, you know, you've known about this for a long time. People have been hearing these stories. Do you think this is different, though, Clara? Do you think this time this could potentially make an impact, this investigation? 
Well, we're really hoping that this time it does make an impact uh, and that it's not just a report that's going to be done and collect dust on the shelf. We have to have um, something come out of this uh, report and in this investigation. And, and I have every confidence in Mary Ellen Tripole Lafond to do that, to ensure that this is not forgotten and uh, that we need education. Mm-hmm. For all frontline workers in all areas of health care for Indigenous people, there's marches going on against racism, and we've been facing this all along for our own people. What does it do to someone when they hear that? They go to a hospital, it's supposed to be a place where they're going to be looked after, right? They're going to be taken care of. But how does it impact people, like from the stories that you've heard, when they, when they get treated like this? Well, when they go to a healthcare facility, emergency, uh, doctor's office, and to be treated in this way, next time they don't want to go because right. they feel re-victimized every time. I mean, my mother lived in the Northwest Territories, and this happens across our whole nation. Uh, we went through this exact same thing uh, with my mother, uh, you know, going to a healthcare facility and being sitting there all day waiting to see a doctor and then not at the end of the day being told, go home, that they can't see you day upon day. And in suffering, going to an ER and told, oh, it's in your head, go home, when she was had cancer. Ugh. I mean, to this day, this really affects me deeply. And to hear that it's happening within this healthcare system in British Columbia also, is really disturbing. So it's putting up barriers then to healthcare, right? People don't want to go, so they're not getting their problems looked after. Absolutely. And uh, so they they don't go. They don't seek that help. And a lot of our people, uh, they look up to the healthcare system and doctors and, and wouldn't say anything uh, because then, again, they're worried that if they do say something, they won't get the help down the road. So what would you say then to people out there, and you said some of them have been calling, but what would you say then to people who perhaps have kept quiet about this? Well, you know, that's where this tip line can come in really handy, that they have to start speaking out. And, you know, we, and that's where the education also comes in, that they have a right to speak out, the right to say this is wrong, and they don't have to worry about, like I said, the repercussions on, on what's going to be happening Uh, But we have to start talking about it. We haven't really talked about it. And we have to talk about it seriously and to show the people that we're moving ahead. And when they go into a facility, they can see that they're going to be welcomed and that uh, they will be taken care of. Do you say, like, you know, there was a report that came out, I was talking about this earlier with Von Palmer, a report that came out a year ago, right, March Mm -hmm. 2019. So it's not like the government hasn't been aware that there could be stories like this out there. Was it frustrating that it took something like this all of a sudden to get the attention? Well, absolutely. For uh, for it to go this far, and now all of a sudden, oh, we better start looking into this, is, again, frustrating. When this report came to light and we knew nothing about it, uh, as Métis, we weren't even uh, asked for any of our uh, input into this report. And uh, it, knowing that it happened in March in 2019, mm-hmm. a report, and none of us seen it or knew about it, again, something that was done and went no further. Right. And that has to stop. 
And so do you, are you optimistic then that this is going to be different? Well, I'm really hopeful that uh, this will be different and maybe this really opened the eyes of government in, in this province to, to say, okay, enough is enough. Something really concrete has to be done. Clara, thank you very much for your time on that. Thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. That's Clara Morandel Cole, president of Metis Nation BC. Now, Marianne Terpel Lafond, who is heading this investigation, will be having a press conference later this morning. We'll have that for you. But just from the stories that Clara was telling there, you could just tell, right, that if you think that's happening, like if you feel like, oh, they're they're talking about me, or I didn't, they're they, they're not treating me well because I have an Indigenous background. Well, of course, that would put up barriers to healthcare. Of course, it would make people reluctant to seek help from a doctor or from the hospital for a problem that they're having. And you can see how that has just terrible repercussions, right, for a person's own health. We're going to be hearing a lot more about this story. You're listening to Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Man, this song is so apropos, isn't it? Because that's what it felt like sometimes if you were out on the road driving in the months of March and April when the pandemic had really hit us here and everything was shut down and the roads were empty. And if you did venture out, there was one thing I think everybody noticed, including me, and that is some people were going way too fast out on the roads. Now, if you saw that... We're not imagining things. It is true. Lots of people saw that too. We're learning from the Vancouver Police Department today that they saw a 44% increase in excessive speeding during March and April compared to the same figures from a year ago. So 56 tickets that they handed out in March and April this year versus 39 in the same period last year. Now you may go, well, that's not a huge increase. Think about how empty the streets were this time, though, and the fact that there were so many fewer cars on the road, and yet they didn't have any problem increasing the number of excessive speeding tickets that they handed out. To talk more about this now, we're joined by Grant Kodogretru, who's a forensic traffic consultant and a former police officer. Grant, thank you very much for being here this morning. Thanks, Jimmy. Now, is it true that your nickname is Darth Radar? Yes. One of my... uh... (laughs) One of my coworkers and a former uh, radio uh, personality, uh, Jeff Palmer, gave me that uh, moniker back in 2016, and uh, apparently That's it stuck. Funny. I think it's quite neat. Actually. And why is it? Were you a big fan of handing out speeding tickets? <laughs> well, you should Google me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I handed out uh, uh, over uh, 2,100 uh, excessive speed uh, tickets from 2010 until I uh, into 2016. So, yes, so okay. that's where that moniker came from. Right? So I take it this doesn't surprise you, that when you hear about all these different police departments and detachments all over the lower mainland saying, oh, yeah, we handed out more excessive speeding tickets, not surprising to you? Oh, no, 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 not at all. In fact, what you commented on is exactly what I saw as well. The second that the... Uh, the lockdown started and businesses were closed and people were staying home. Uh, there was less traffic on the road at 
times where there would be maximum traffic on the road. Now, I didn't mind it because I thought, well, this is great. I don't like rush hour anyways. Uh, but those people with a with a heavy foot that would normally be, you know, 80 kilometers over the speed limit at yeah. 11 o'clock at night when there's nobody on the road, well, now they're doing that In the middle know, of the throughout day. the day because there's, yes. And as I, I, as I mentioned to uh, your, your sister station yesterday, um, I, I still have obviously many contacts in the different police departments in the lower mainland. And, and there was another reason there was also a lack of present um, presence on the road by the police because the frontline workers obviously so were told by the bosses that uh, avoid unnecessary contact right but it doesn't but grant it doesn't take much to make cars slow down right you don't have to have contact can't you just park the police car there that's enough to make a lot of people slow down well i think because the information initially coming out from everybody was high risk if you have any contact with anybody I think it was like, well, you know, the the police departments changed their model for the first little while there. Um, and you can right. contact them for that information. But basically, it was uh, skeleton crews. Uh, people were staying home. Officers were being told to stay from home or work from home if they could. Right. Uh, people took advantage. It was, well, because and there was so much confusion people started being really scared because initially with the with the lockdown and i'm not too sure you know are we having a return to the bubonic plague that type of attitude so people took advantage of it that being the motorists yeah those with the with the heavy feet and i did talk to one of my contacts in one of the bigger police departments and, and he mentioned that they were told no enforcement don't do any enforcement right now but then they noticed that motorists were taking advantage of that. Oh, yeah. You know, you know the, old, the old model, the cat's away, the mice will play. So that's what happened. So they decided as a group, no, we have to get out there and do enforcement because this right. is ridiculous. Hey, well, you must have heard, Grant, so many excuses from people over the years, right? And was there a consistency in this? Does everybody just kind of try to wiggle out of a ticket? Well, a lot of it was, well... <laughs> When you're caught for excessive speed, most people know that they're going 40 to 50 to 60, in some cases, 100 kilometers over the speed Uh. limit. They're not necessarily the ones whining, complaining. The main complaint I would hear was that the speed limit was too low. Right. In their mind. In their mind, right? Yeah. um, But that was generally, generally most people didn't like the, um, the impounding of the car. That's what their big complaint was. They didn't try to get out of the ticket and uh, because they knew they were going so fast. Right. Is there a difference, do you think, between people, those excessive speeders that you catch versus the people who are going like 10, 15 kilometers over the speed limit? Is it two different groups of people, do you think? Actually, it's the regular speeders that go between 20 and 30 over the, the limit that whine and bitch the most when they get pulled over by the police. Really? Absolutely. I had very, very few complainers of the over 2,100 excessive speeds, but all of the other speeders um, were much more um, upset about it, if you will. That's so interesting. So essentially, when it comes to the excessive speeders, when you catch them, they're like, yeah, well, you got me. That's that's exactly (laughs) right. They know it. They know it. What do you think is the biggest deterrent? You mentioned impounding the cars. Like, how do you tell people, listen, excessive speeding is just unacceptable? There's no deterrent. You can't do anything. Absolutely not. Because as long as we have free will, we're going to do what we want. 
I mean, look at the look at the penalties for uh, cell phones. Those yeah. are astronomical. What's that? No, no. The only way to stop excessive speed is to get rid of all cars and go to horses. <laughs> but then we'll or, find something bad. With, we'll find something yeah, bad to do with that too, right? Or, or, or put a governor in every car that maximum you know fifty kilometers an hour, and that's it. Because at the end of the day, you're never going to stop it. Excessive speed has been on the books for ten years. They can make the fines as high as they want. They can levy as many points as they want, but it's you know people are going to still do it regardless. It, does it does the enforcement work though? Because clearly, as you said, we couldn't be trusted during the pandemic, so then they had to start enforcing it again. Do you think that works? That crackdown? Oh, I, I think it does. I've had some. Um, I've had a couple of motorists who who told me specifically a year later after I saw them in court that they changed their driving habits because oh. of the excessive speed. So it, it, it it's working for some people, but not for all, because I did have some repeat customers. I'll bet. I'll bet and, you. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. But uh, it's it's just how we that's how we're built as humans. Uh, sure sounds like it is. Grant, thank you so much for your time on this. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime, Tima. Thank you. That is Grant Gottgetru, who's with Gottgetru Consulting. His nickname is Darth Radar. As a former police officer, he he impounded and gave out excessive speeding tickets, something like 2,000 of them uh, in a six-year period. And he says you just can't can't prevent stupid, essentially. People are going to do it Anyway, no surprise to hear the VPD saying they saw a 44% increase in excessive speeding during the months of March and April. You're listening to Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You know, there's been a lot of focus the last couple of weeks on training for law enforcement and police officers, and this is right across North America. And what does that say about us here in BC? How do we train our police officers? Is it adequate? Well, there are a couple of reports that suggest no, training for BC police officers is not adequate. We're going to hear more about those now with the help of our next guest. It's Bob Mackin, freelance journalist with TheBreaker.News. They broke this story after accessing those two reports. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Okay, so where did these reports come from? These reports were done in 2017 and 2018 by Peter German and Bob Rolls. Peter German is pretty uh, high profile, former head of the RCMP for Western Canada, in recent years, he has uh, written the reports and investigated money laundering here in British Columbia that uh, provided the foundation for what we have now, the Tullin Commission Public right. Inquiry. Bob Rolls is a former deputy chief of the Vancouver Police, and he's in the news these days because he's the founding member of the Surrey Police Board. Of course, Mayor Doug McCallum in Surrey, along with uh, endorsement from the provincial government, is pushing forward on the plan to replace the RCMP in Surrey with a new municipal force there. So Bob Rolls and Peter German did these two reports for the Municipal Police Chiefs Association back in 2017 and 2018. The 2017 report essentially recommended further investigation, which they did in 2018. These are long reports. The first one from 2017, April 2017, is about 99 pages. The one from February 2018 is 80 pages. Right. The first one's called Needs Assessment. The second one is called We Can Do Better. But how, how did you get these? Are these publicly available? How did you get access to them? Uh, I've got uh, leaked, leaked these reports. Uh, I've got some good sources. Uh, these reports, even though they're for the Municipal Police Chiefs Association, uh, 11 municipal uh, departments plus uh, tribal police in Mount Curry and the Transit Police, uh, they were also forwarded to the Justice Institute, which is a creature of the provincial government. 
based in Westminster, as well as to the policing division of the Solicitor General's ministry. And these reports weren't uh, weren't released with much uh, fanfare, weren't really released at all. Right. Um, and they were uh, kept, uh, uh, you know, under uh, under the cover. Basically, uh, they they called for more funding, which eventually. Eventually, when the NDP took over in summer 2017 as a provincial uh, governing party with the help of the Greens, that there was some money put, extra money put into the Justice Institute, Mm -hmm. um, and also committees struck to look at uh, more and better funding and better governance in the future. Uh, Not much has been done here, but uh, now that we are talking about uh, the costs and benefits of the way our policing is structured here in British Columbia, as uh, other jurisdictions are across North America. Right. Uh, and, and we see a transition happening in Surrey, the second biggest city in the province. This becomes uh, very relevant. Now, let me ask you, though, talking about the inadequate training, because that is such a big topic right now. In what ways does the do these reports lay out that the training is inadequate? What aren't we doing? Well, the, the reports basically say that... Uh, and these are based by site visits. Uh, Peter German and Bob Rolls looked at uh, eight other academies around North America. They went uh, to uh, Calgary and Edmonton. They went to the RCMP National Academy in Regina, which is the biggest police academy in the country. They went to Ontario to look at their provincial, as well as the Toronto and York region uh, police academies. They went uh, just down the I-5 to Washington State, and they looked at the governance of the police academies, how in Alberta, for instance, the police academies uh, come under the auspices of the chiefs of police. Uh, And, uh, of course, the RCMP police academy is uh, run by an assistant uh, uh, commissioner from the RCMP, a very senior federal officer. Here in British Columbia, they they call it convoluted and difficult to discern. That's uh, the words of Peter German, Bob Rolls. They say there's almost no interaction between the BC Police Academy at the Justice Institute and the RCMP, and there are two advisory committees, advisory committees that feed into the academy, um, and there's bureaucracy that leads up into the uh, Solicitor General Ministry. There, there really is no direct line there. Right. And even though it's not mentioned in these reports, just to paint some context for what was going on at the Justice Institute at the time, uh, the chair of the board of the Justice Institute back in 2017 and 2018, was Rob Croker, who was then a vice president of BC Lottery Corporation, uh, who was forced out of the chairmanship in the fall of 2018 because it became poor optics to have someone from BC Lottery Corporation, someone under fire with many questions about uh, how casinos came the way they are today. Uh, He was eventually fired by BC Lottery Corporation in July of last year. So that's the leadership and the structure that was going on then, and uh, that uh, Peter German and Bob Rolls looked at it and said that compared to other police academies around North America, um, this one here in British Columbia was not meeting its goals, and uh, the training was inadequate because of uh, governance as well as the funding model. Now, do you get any sense, Bob, that that could change? Are we going to update training? This is a very old model that we're working with here in B.C., yeah, the, the Justice Institute, it runs on a budget of about $53 million a year, and almost $22 million of that comes from taxpayers, and most of the rest comes from tuition. Uh, it took in, uh, of that money, $2.27 million from provincial police services. Uh, they also charge recruits uh, tuition. Uh, other jurisdictions don't charge recruits for tuition, and in fact, even pay the recruits a bit of a stipend for the time that they serve learning. Uh, the Justice Institute here in British Columbia has even become 
reliant on uh, other kinds of contracts and other kinds of training. Uh, for instance, one that's kind kind of under the radar is it hosted uh, almost 300 police students from across uh, the People's Republic of China at the Chilliwack campus, and that was part of its $1.7 million mm-hmm. revenue from international training. I think there may, may need to be uh, questions about yeah. the Justice Institute is properly training British Columbia police officers and why a provincial uh, organization here in Canada is training officers uh, from a country like China with such right. a poor human rights record. Okay, well, we'll be following up, Bob. We want to hear more about this. Listen, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.